Hey, everyone. Thanks for joining. Today, I'm speaking with Eric Kaufman. Eric is a professor of politics at Burbeck College in uh, at the University of London. Um, he kind of focuses on cultural politics, ethnicity, national identity, and he's author of a book, White Shift, uh, Population, Immigration, Immigration, and the Future of the White Majority. And he's had a recent, um, I guess, research paper out about academic freedom in the Anglosphere. Hi, Eric. Thank you for coming on. Great to be here, Bate. Thanks for having me. Um, so I guess we could start with your your latest paper there. I don't know if you call it a paper or research. It's a report, like a think tank report. Uh, okay. Um, and that was about academic freedom in Canada, United States, and the UK. Um, and I mean, a lot of this stuff has been coming out about how, you know, I think Jonathan Haidt has done it about how left the university was going. And I mean, you kind of see it all the time people getting, you know, professor university of California was almost fired because he said a Chinese word that sounded like a bad word. Right, <laughs> and <things right>. like that. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, how did, like, how did you start? Like, what was the impetus for you to do that? And, you know, what were some of the things you found? Well, yeah. So, so I think this is all falling within a broader research agenda that is looking at the phenomenon of what I call left modernism, which is sort of the, the leading, cultural ideology of our time. Mm -hmm. And that's not the same thing as socialism. It's not materialistic like socialism. It's much more about uh, identity categories, mm -hmm. which have then been uh, fused with a socialistic worldview of oppressor versus oppressed. And, and so they've taken the categories from, from liberalism, which is religion, you know, so religious minorities, sexual minorities, etc., gender, uh, which were concerns of liberalism. And then they've which, and they fuse those with uh, a, a sort of oppressor-oppressed conflict-based mindset, which comes out of socialism. But, but actually, this new ideology is now actually adaptable to capitalism, so woke capitalism, or you can go the other direction and, and woke anarchism. Um, so it's not socialism of the old school. So I'm interested in that ideology, which I think actually has a long history. Uh, and it emerges through the two world wars as a kind of dominant uh, high cultural ideology. And then I'm interested in how that interacts with certain policy areas, one of which is around national identity, immigration, and so forth. Um, and, and also the other is political polarization. And so within that context, I'm then interested in the, the, the spread of this ideology within institutions. One of, you know, this, and the epicenter there is the university system. Um, and so I was kind of interested in this phenomenon, which is well documented, which is the ideological tilt of the universities, um, particularly the faculties. And, uh, and there have been successive academic there's been successive academic attention paid to this over the years not as much as you would expect there to be paid i think given the importance of this but um there has been some work that's been done and it's shown a drift no it's academia has not always been as left-wing as it is now it's always had a preponderance of of left-wingers but it's not and it's gone from something like one and a half to one this is including the sciences and including all universities down to the lowest uh, ranked colleges it's gone from about one and a half to one in around 1960, 1972, uh, around sort of six to one now. And, and if we take something like the most left-leaning disciplines like sociology and the, and the softer social sciences and humanities, it might have gone from about three to one to 12 to one or, or up to 14 to one today. So that shift, I think, is, is interesting. And it also... Um, I'm interested in how that is reproduced, that that tilt is reproduced. Is it just a matter of people selecting, opting in, self-selecting? And so you get a certain kind of person self-selecting in. The question then becomes, well, why is that happening? So what this report is, it's actually a very comprehensive thing. And it's based on, it's basically 60,000 or 50, 60,000 words. It's like a book, 200 pages almost, very detailed exploration of the UK, uh, Canada, and the US based on eight, uh, eight surveys. So it's largely quantitative uh, evidence-driven. I'm trying to get away from the idea of the anecdote. You know, we all know the anecdotes and that's been important and it's, but it's been done very extensively by people online, perhaps, you know, Douglas Murray and, and Andrew Doyle and all, and, and all kinds of people. We've got a lot of 
very powerful anecdotes about, you know, Charles Murray and Brett Weinstein and, and, and uh, all kinds of people, Jermaine Greer and others who've had difficulties uh, with cancellation. Now, the, the issue then becomes, well, they might, this is often brushed aside. People say, well, there's only a few no platformings a year. There are 100,000 academics in Britain. There's maybe 500,000 or a million in the U.S., this doesn't matter. This is a, a right-wing moral panic. So part of what I was trying to do here is to say, well, no, actually, um, we have a very solid ba evidence base that's kind of quantitative and survey-based that will show you, for example, that you know fewer than one in 10 Trump-supporting academics, uh, fewer than two in 10 Brexit-supporting academics say they would be comfortable expressing that view to a colleague. Now, that's giving you a sense of how pervasive this chilling effect is. And it's really the chilling effect that I concentrate on the most as the greatest threat to academic freedom. Not a few no platformings, even though those are important and they're symptoms, but they're symptoms of a much bigger disease that lies under the surface. Okay. Um, like you'd mentioned the chilling effect. Mm. Now, I mean, I see that a lot. Yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get it out of academia just for a second. It's just like in general day-to-day -day life. Um, you know, I got into looking at a lot of all of this stuff because of the conversation around Islam. You know, it was basically I got called a white supremacist for criticizing Islam, and like, where the hell is this coming from? And I just wanted to know because yeah. it just seemed all it just seemed weird because a one I'm brown, <laughs> right? <laughs> you know, um, so that's when I got started looking into this. But I had friends who would say that. You know, I'd post something about Islam on my Facebook, and I had friends say, "Oh, I'm glad you're saying this because I can't say that." I'm like, "Why not?" Well, I'm white. I'm like that shouldn't matter, you know? Yeah. yeah. So I started seeing about things like that. So, and like the chilling effect as well. Like, I mean, I'm going to stick with this. It's, you know, the grooming gangs in the UK mm. and I, okay. Now this obviously the grooming gangs predates what's going on in the university. Cause that can go back. You can trace that back to the eighties, but you know, social workers and the police were afraid to go after South Asian men because they didn't want to seem racist. So, right. Were you looking at that as well? Like, were you looking at, you know, the the runoff effects from a from the academy of how it goes on to public, or was is, are you were you just focusing on academics? Well, I think the point you make is really an important one, which is that this is not just a post twenty fifteen phenomenon. I mean, yes, there's been a big upsurge in cancellation campaigns, no platformings, and everything since twenty fifteen, as as height and Lukianov say in the coddling of the American mind. Uh, but what I argue in the book and elsewhere is that actually this is part of a, a much older development. So, for example, the kind of minority sensitivity you talk about with regard to the grooming gangs, um, let's say that there's a dial and you've got sensitivity to minority sentiments or, or perceived uh, minority sentiments at zero, let's say, in 1940. And then you have a dial, right? And then you maybe it, it's up to six or seven by 1969. And by 1989, it's up to eight or nine. And then by 2015, it's at 11. I think that is a better way of thinking about this development. And so the question then is, well, this issue of minority sensitivity and the taboo around racism, uh, that, that it's, it's blasphemous, blasphemous to, to mount any kind of criticism of any kind of minority if you are white, let's say. Uh, where does that come from and how does that develop is, is I think an interesting story. And I think it is, it is the case that the ideological innovations were already there in the late 1960s for the most part. Not all of the innovations, trans wasn't yet there, but most of, most of the stuff around race, gender, sexuality was already kind of there even if it was a small number of people that were advancing it. So you can see, for example, um, not, you know, in 1968, blacks, radical black students and their fellow travelers are occupying uh, the offices of the University of San Francisco and they demand 50 black studies positions and that every black student be admitted. And, you know, you have Black Panthers going into university buildings with guns and you've got all kinds of things happening in the late sixties, which are, I think in many ways equal, equally or even more uh, outrageous than what we see now. And it's not as though 
that was just all of a sudden shut down. I mean, there was a lot of toleration for that. And there weren't many good answers for why they shouldn't be doing this. And you also had intellectuals like Nathan Glazer saying, you know, these people call themselves the free speech movement, and now they're trying to silence speech of professors who they don't like. And that was already going on in the late 60s. And so once that mindset is there, it's just a question of scaling it up. It's of generations entering into institutions, becoming the professors, no longer the students, inculcating another generation, then going from the universities into corporations, into publishing in the media and so on. Uh, so it's an ideology that is advancing through these in elite institutions. Um, so what I would say is that, yeah, there, there definitely is a connection and it runs through that initially just a hypersensitivity to minorities, which then becomes a sacralization and holiness attached to minorities with a certain hierarchy. Uh, and then it becomes what McWhorter, John McWhorter would call the religion of anti-racism. So you have this kind of gradual sacralization taking place where criticism is blasphemy and you have to, you know, take the knee or bow the head or whatever you have to do, a very religious sensibility emerges. And then we're living through that now in the elite institutions. Uh, and it's having all kinds of kickbacks in terms of now it's colliding with real politics and it's doing things like helping Donald Trump get elected and it's doing things, you know, so, so it's causing, you know, polarization and, and anti-elitism and all, all of these other things are coming in its wake. Uh, we're living through that politics. Yeah, I might, because I'm reading a lot of this stuff lately, because like I said, I was just trying to figure out where some of this is coming from. So I, this might not have been in your uh, report, but it was something like 25% of PhDs were okay with firing someone over wrong views. And I think it was something like 60% uh, no, so 25% of professors. And I think it was like 60% of PhDs or 50% of PhDs. Right. Yeah. So I had four, basically four survey questions where I sort of had hypothetical scenarios. So they were all about professors who found certain things in their research. So one was, you know, kids do better with two parents than they do with one. These are not things that I'm endorsing, but they are loosely based on actual cases. Or another is, um, you know, greater race and gender diversity leads an organization to do not as well. Or, you know, so quite very controversial findings, no doubt about that. Uh, not asking people to agree with these findings, but the question is, well, would you agree with essentially um, trying to get them out of, out of their jobs at, at a university? So it's really about canceling. And I mean, there's some good news. I mean, you could say that on average, fewer than one in 10 academics were in favor of campaigns to get rid of these academics who are doing these, finding these um, results. But on the other hand, if you take anybody who answered at least yes to at least one of those four campaigns, it's you know 25% of current social science humanities academics who are, who are saying yes to at least one of those four. Still a minority, still somewhat good news in the sense it's still a minority, but if we look at the academics under age 35, they're twice as likely to endorse these campaigns. And if you look at um, graduate students, PhDs, they're even more likely. So it's in the US, it's sort of above 50% were willing to endorse at least one of these four campaigns. So there's a significant group of pro-cancel academics coming down the pipe. It's, it's a larger share. And this is why I'm arguing that the problem isn't going to fade away. It's going to get worse before it gets better because the age, the younger, and it's not about ideology, the younger uh, people entering academia are no more left-wing. They're about the same. They're very left-wing as are the current academics as are the older academics. So that's not where the difference lies, but the young far leftist is a lot more intolerant than the older far leftist. And that's the problem that I see coming at us. Um, just on that. So like, say, say 25% are in favor of, you know, firing someone or having them removed from a position. Did you look at stats on hiring? Like, I know you mentioned that, you know, like one in 10 Trump supporters didn't want to talk about their, their political views, but what about, cause I, I saw something yesterday. It was, I don't want to mention the account because they're kind of, they don't want to, they don't want to get in trouble and they're in academia. And, you know, they'd mentioned that they were on a hiring committee and they were looking to hire a new professor. And one of the, one of the people on the committee, she said, well, 
this book or this paper you wrote made me feel unsafe and that that person wasn't hired, even though they were qualified for the job. So have you looked at how this is affecting hiring? Because if they're willing to get rid of people, obviously they want to bring those people in so that they have to get rid of them later. So like, I'm just wondering if there's a correlation in there. Yeah, hugely important. I mean, there's two kinds of um, um, what I would call progressive authoritarianism going on. I mean, one is, is the sort of hard form, like either disciplining or threatening with discipline or firing, for example. I mean, that is, you know, if we get away from firing and we include other forms of discipline, like being demoted or taken off of kind of teaching or research that you want to do or being threatened, you know, that's one in three uh, conservative academics or graduate students in America that have faced that uh, threat. So that's the hard threat. But then we also got this, what I call soft authoritarianism, which is anything but soft, but say being discriminated against for your political views. Um, and here we see that in the surveys, uh, using a, a method called a, a concealed list experiment shows that one in three, well, 40% of American academics and 45% of Canadian academics would not hire a known Trump supporter for a job. And in the UK, it's one in three wouldn't hire a known Brexit uh, supporter. And these are all positions that are either majority, slight majority or slightly less than majority of the population fall into either the category of Brexit supporter or Trump supporter, so, uh, or Trump voter. Um, so yeah, this is um, pretty astounding, but it shows a quite a high level of discrimination. Um, now it's not because, it's important to note, this isn't because academics are, are worse Actually, I mean, if you take someone with a degree who is on the left, who works anywhere in, in the world, you know, in, in another institution, they will answer, they will be just, just as discriminatory. So we've kind of got this problem of this general problem of discrimination. But of course, when you have a more even mix of conservative and, and, and leftists, then they kind of, I won't say they cancel each other out, but it's, it's not as much of a problem as when it's the ratios are 10 to one, let's say, and then the 10, even if the one and the 10 discriminate against each other at the same rate, all the discriminatory effect more or less hits on the minority when it's it's in a one, one out of 10 position. And so that's kind of what's happening is you've got, you know, it may be that in a hiring committee of four, three of them might not be, or two of them might not be biased against the conservative, but if they're all on the left, one or two of them will be, and that is typically enough to sink the person's candidacy. Now, as a response, of course, conservatives will shy away from saying what they really think. They'll conceal their views. They might even pretend that they're a progressive. This is, these are the coping strategies, and there's, there are papers that show this by, in the U.S., you can tell somebody's party registration. Um, and so looking, they basically ask people to try and identify from their published work who was a conservative and who was not. They couldn't, the, the, the coders, the people who they asked to identify, the conservatives couldn't pick out the conservatives because the conservatives were concealing their views, whereas they could pick out a lot of the liberals because they were much more open of their views because their views are the majority. So, and this is partly what I mean by the uh, chilling effects. And what that does is it simply means certain questions aren't asked. Uh, certain perspectives never see the light of day. And that's really the, the effect of this discrimination is to s distort the entire body of knowledge and production of knowledge uh, in academia. Okay, but I went to university in the late 80s. Like I went to college and university from the late 80s to, you know, like finish in 95. Hmm. And there, you know, that was, I, it was starting around the time, like it was around the time of the first, you know, political correctness and all that stuff. So I, I saw some of that nonsense. But I mean, the whole point of the academy is to find the truth or an approximation thereof. But if you're like, if you're so afraid of a viewpoint, like that's what I don't get. How did, okay. When this stuff started becoming more and more ascendant, and I know you mentioned like, you know, in the sixties and stuff, but I just started becoming more ascendant in the late eighties. Why weren't older academics pushing it, pushing back, or were they just afraid? Or I mean, was it just because of the siloing effect of the university? You know, the English department won't criticize the physics department, the math department won't criticize sociology because oh, they've got their PhDs, they're the experts. We know math. You guys know sociology. <coughs> like, like, what was it? Well, 
here's the thing is that I actually don't think that the side that was opposed to all this politicization of the academy ever really had had developed arguments were ever really willing to stand up. I mean, they might have been willing to say, well, we favor people who can do rigorous quantitative analysis and, and we don't want to have uh, mushy critical theory come into our department. They, they might have made those arguments and strictly on methods grounds, but they weren't really willing to resist the narrative that says, I came into the academy because I wanted to be an activist. I mean, that whole politicization was not really resisted um, explicitly. You can see, for, and, and I think, so for example, I think if someone in the 70s even had you know, decided to cancel somebody, and there have been incidents of this in, in the 60s and 70s, I mean, there's no real resistance because there's not a proper, I mean, there's some resistance from people defending academic freedom, but there, there weren't really many good arguments. A good example would be, uh, you know, University of British Columbia in 1995 had the its political science department was more or less paralyzed with accusations of uh, racism and, and sexism, not pointing to any individual. It was all nonspecific gibberish. They had this high-priced consultant come in. They found, and, and again, delivered this report with more non-specific gibberish. Uh, and it was a laughingstock in the press. But the point that, that I'd make is, you know, this is 1995. That's like 20 years ago. Nobody was coming up with a proper argument that says, you know, this is politicization, doesn't belong in the academy. No, they were already way too scared. Um, and, and so I think this is just something that's got a long lineage. And the only difference now is social media makes the flash mobs easier to organize. Plus, there are more foot soldiers because there have been people coming through the grievance studies programs through, the, you know, through these highly politicized uh, academies. And so you simply have more foot soldiers. You've got equity and diversity bureaucrats. So there's more people, to, more activists, more of a supply. But I think they've always been pushing on an open door. I don't think there's ever been a really proper bulwark against these people in the academy. Okay, so does that go back to like Popper's thing of, you know, the enemies of the open society? Like it's, you know, because people use that stupid cartoon of Popper's, you know, paradox of, of tolerance. Right. And a lot of people who use it, I'm like, you've never read Popper. Because that's right. not what he says. You know, it's like, it's like they're mixing uh, repressive tolerance in with, Popper's version of tolerance, right? And, you know, because again, I'm looking at this and it just okay. Yeah, there's a lot of stupid things out there, but you know, this idea that you can't tolerate an offensive argument. I mean, you know, and I see this coming from people who say they're free speech advocates, who you know they're advocates for the Enlightenment and this and that, and they're like, oh well, you know, you don't want to offend someone. I'm like, okay, yeah, I don't want to go out of my way to, you know, offend someone, but especially on a, on a college campus, you should be able to have a free and open flowing dialogue and not, you know, not get called out. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing in some colleges where they're setting up, oh, if you hear a student say something, you know, call this number or something like that. I mean, it's right. Biased response teams. Yeah. Yeah. I'm like, you know, I worked in the former Yugoslavia. I was in Afghanistan. I was in Haiti. I was in Sudan. These places don't, you know, <laughs> you had all this kind of stuff there. And the people who are coming from there are terrified. <laughs> and I mean, yeah. like, why would a college want to create that kind of an atmosphere? Like, I mean, if I had kids today, I, I'd maybe look at trade schools or something because I mean, honestly, I don't know right. if I want to send my kids to, like, which is a shame because, yeah, I, I think knowledge is a great thing. I think learning is a great thing, but are you actually doing that there? Um, you, you, you can, you can, there is knowledge in much of the university. If you're studying the mating patterns of butterflies or Renaissance pottery, although even Renaissance pottery, you have to watch probably what you're studying, but you know, you probably, you have quite a bit of freedom. It's a bit like China. Like as long as you don't criticize the regime, you can have a nice life. And most people don't even notice the loss of freedom. But if you are in, in academia, if you're, as long as you're not touching any of the sacred cows around race, gender, and sexuality or anything proximal to that, you can have a very good life and you don't even notice the problem. Um, so 
the ideological regime, as long as you don't cross it, you've got no problems. Now, the question is, how, how did the university evolve in this direction? Well, I think that, um, it, yeah, essentially there, there was no real resistance post, post the 1960s. There was a sudden, sudden shift um, in society. You know, universities had been vocal in opposing McCarthyism. So things that are coming from the right and rightly so, they were opposing those in the name of academic freedom. But somehow, this has to do with the evolution of liberalism. Liberalism moves from being about equality of opportunity to being about equality of outcome for designated sacred groups. And that happens almost in a fit of absence of mind. Like you see that with the civil rights movement from Martin Luther King and then switching into President Johnson talking about you know, affirmative action, it's it sort of, even though he didn't use the term affirmative action, he more or less meant it. Um, and what I argue is that what it, what it occurred is liberalism had become identified with minorities and defending minorities. That, that equation had become so powerful that liberals began to think in terms of, um, at a very gut level, minority equals good, majority equals bad. And so when you get to a situation where it's still minority equals good, majority equals bad, but instead of equality of opportunity and liberal principles, we're actually going to, you know, we're going to bend those liberal principles and we're going to essentially, we're going to restrict the liberalism of the majority in order to, to help the minority. But hey, we're still, we're still within the paradigm of helping minorities against majorities. So this is still liberalism. And that kind of, that is sort of the sleight of hand that occurs in the mid sixties. Uh, and liberals go along with that and they redefine and, and kind of torture their concepts in order to justify that. So they'll say, well, you know, by, uh, by more silencing the powerful, we, we empower the, uh, the weak and that improves their liberty. And so it's liberalism. You know, it, it, these sorts of games about bringing equality in the back door and calling it liberalism. Uh, and that's sort of what occurs. So now, you know, this then goes into the universities and they buy into this uh, formula whereby, well, as long as we're helping minorities, that's liberalism. Um, and then once you accept that, you just, it's just about turning the volume up. You know, minority, instead of uh, minority being good at level five and majority being bad at level five, you, you crank both those buttons up to 10. And that's what we're living in now where, you know, majorities are now awful, terrible, racist, supremacist, misogynist, and then you have uh, minorities who are, you know, vulnerable and protect, so vulnerable that, you know, if they hear uh, a phrase like, I don't notice race, then that's a microaggression. You know, essentially the hypersensitization, um, infantilization of minorities and the hyper uh, demonization of majorities. And that's what we're living through. So I think, you know, essentially what happens is this, uh, acquiescence in the uh, sacralization of identity groups as uh, sacred and holy and therefore cannot be criticized, cannot be offended even. And, and you get people who emerge as political entrepreneurs who get offended on behalf of. They, they mind read the so-called mind of the minority and they and they get outraged on behalf of and 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 there's a competitive outrage industry and then you get social media so the whole thing is completely spirals out of control but it has this common i think this common ideological root which goes back to the uh, late 60s but even there i think you can trace it back further in a certain way even to the 1910s i think you can see in the 1910s the origin of multiculturalism, for example, which is really about saying that, and this is coming from mainly white Protestant intellectuals, Bohemian uh, intellectuals, and these are sort of the ancestors of this cultural left uh, outlook. And they say, well, we wasps should be cosmopolitan. We should slough off our, our ethnicity and get away from our, our ethnicity. We're boring and repressed. And all these immigrant groups, the Jews and Italians and, and other groups are really exciting. Um, and they, we should encourage them to keep their culture and not to assimilate because then they were, they're going to lose uh, and they're going to become like us, which is terrible. And so, so what, what, we're, what you get is that dichotomy where ethnicity is really awful for a majority white groups and is really great for minorities. And, and that mindset 
I think has remained at the center of this uh, ideology. Okay, you know, look, my parents immigrated to Canada when I was six. You know, I appreciate that. I mean, I appreciate that Canada let us in. But when my f- folks came here, um, I mean, it wasn't a, a it wasn't like a year long course. I think it was a short, I think one week or two weeks, where they said, okay. Again, I was six, so I don't remember all of it, but I remember my parents going to this class, and it was just, you know, here are Canadian values, and it wasn't like, you know, we celebrate Thanksgiving. It was just like, you know, you'll tolerate everyone's freedoms. You're allowed to believe what you want. You can't push it on other people, like little things like that. Now, that got canceled, you know, budget cuts or whatever, but I mean, I think you need more things like that, but now it's, like you said, oh, we have to help the minorities, but I'm looking at what they're doing, and, you know, they're equating love of reading with whiteness they're equating you know basically you know was it uh, objectivity love of the written word professionalism punctuality like i'm trying to list off some of these things i mean i'm looking at that i'm like you're not helping anyone like if you're telling you know black and brown kids that you don't need to study math or that you need to find a new form of math um you know you don't need to worry about reading these books. You don't need to worry about, you know, being objective or what's going on in like K through 12. Uh, you know, if a black or brown kid is late, well, don't penalize them because that's just a cultural thing. I mean, again, someone should at some point should stop and say, well, you're not helping anyone. Like you, you honestly aren't. <laughs> well, I don't, first of all, I don't think they're actually that interested necessarily in the black and brown kids. I mean, this, this is the other, I mean, they're more interested. It's, and I think this is where McWhorter is right. This is largely an identity project and is mainly a white liberal identity project where if you took away demonization of whites or, or males or whatever, then you take away the reason for, for existence in a way. I mean, this is, they need it to be oppositional they need the, the conflict side. It's not simply about helping people who are in some ways not doing well. I mean, that is not particularly exciting. It doesn't give you any anything to push against. Um, so I think this is largely a kind of white liberal identity project, which is about partly about status, you know, saying that I have a more refined sensibility than the unwashed. So that's part of it. But also I think a large part of it is a genuine belief. I mean, a genuine belief that this is about absolute, this is a moral absolute that, you know, the majority is evil and the minorities are, are, are uh, in need of salvation or are in need of protection. And, and my role is I'm going to be one of the good whites. And so I am kind of blessed in the eyes of the Lord. You know, it's almost like that, uh, that level. And um, I think that's just unquestioned that, that sort of, that's kind of the belief system that a lot of kind of quote unquote idealistic young people imbibe in our society. It's not, it's no longer about class and, and, and Marxism. I mean, that's there of course, but it's, it's mainly about, I'm not, I'm an anti-racism I'm an anti-racist and everybody else is racist or I'm an anti-sexist or homophobe or transphobe and everybody else, you know, so I have a, I'm more moral than everybody else. I think that is kind of the, at the core of this belief system. And so anyone who pops up and makes a claim on behalf of one of the sacred protected historically disadvantaged groups gets points, if you like, yes, gets, oh, they're really holy in this value system, in this oppressor oppressed uh, value system. They clearly are of a more refined sensibility. They're holier than, than I am. Um, and, and so it incentivizes more and more people to, to call people out, uh, to make these claims. Uh, and there's no check on this within the elite culture. Now you have got, of course, the intellectual dark web and, and you've got conservatives who are attacking this, but within the elite culture itself and the elite institutions, the official policies that they have, I mean, there's almost no resistance. Um, they're completely lost to this. They've, they've completely invested in this entire worldview. Um, and so when it, yes, they'll, they'll nod along to academic freedom and the enlightenment and, and reason, but whenever there's a, a, a clash or a tension, somebody's research 
suggesting that the difference, group differences is not because of racism, it's because of, I don't know, differences in culture, differences in family structure, whatever, um, immediately the, the racism card will be pulled out. Uh, so what you see is, is, is that when there's a clash, things like enlightenment and academic freedom, they're thrown under the bus because they have a lower priority compared to the uh, sacred progressive values. Okay, yeah. Now, again, like I said, I was looking at a lot of this stuff, but, and I was making a lot of comparisons with Islam. Like, I mean, I know, you know, McWhorter's putting out the stuff that, you know, this is like a religion. I know James Lindsay has written a few papers how this is a religion. Um, but I was looking at it from an Islam type of thing. So early 1900s, you had Hassan al-Banna start the Muslim Brotherhood. Now, the Muslim Brotherhood wasn't that popular or that powerful, and a lot of the governments were pushing back against it. But then you have Sayyid Qatub come to the United States, you know, study here, go back to Egypt, and he creates this identity of pan-Arabism. So you have an Arabic identity politics. And, you know, go ahead a couple more, you know, a decade or so after that, or maybe a few years after that, I don't have, I can't remember the dates exactly. You have Franz Fanon writing in Algeria, and he writes The Wretched of the Earth, which I found was an awful, awful book, but whatever. <laughs> You see this stuff coming out, and then you have Edward Said's Orientalism. I mean, so it's, I, I kind of equated it to, you know, the whatever, quote unquote, the golden age of Islam, and that knowledge gets into Europe, and that leads to two strains of thought. That leads to the tribe of Al Ghazali, which uh, Aquinas takes up and creates his, you know, rules for burning heretics. And then you have the other people of, you know, like Avaros and Avicenna, and that thought leads to, or partially leads to the enlightenment. So here it's, again, it's this thought going back to the Middle East. And then instead of taking anything good from there, we're taking all the, like it's, it, it was a weird mix. And I mean, I, I again, I see a religious aspect to this. Uh, okay. The anti-racism stuff, everything is looked through the rate, you know, lens of race. I mean, if you take the, the Robin D'Angelo extreme thing, it's not whether racism occurred it's how did racism occur right, right? um <laughs> it's a foregone conclusion but if you look at you know muslim societies especially ones that have sharia everything is looked on the lens of is this islamic is this halal, halal or haram is it okay or is it not i mean I, you, I guess you can talk about orthodox jews as well does it follow the halakhic law right it's it's yeah it's, it's very very religious and like i don't know if it's that like i'm Again, I'm not an academic. I'm just some schmuck on Twitter who likes to read. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah. You know. Well, I think there's a commonality in this sense that if you take uh, Islam or Judaism or Protestantism as religions, they are all characterized by itinerant preachers who have followings. And there is, it's not like the Vatican in, in Catholicism where there's a centralized hierarchy and whatever. <laughs> The, 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 so, so once you have these roving preachers, they can kind of one-up each other by being more fundamentalist and saying, these guys are corrupt. They're not following the, the true ways of, of Islam or of Judaism. And I have the true, uh, I'm the pure. And um, that is the same way wokeness operates as a religion, that it's itinerant preachers, except they're on social media uh, or maybe in the media. Um, and they're competing with each other to be the purest of the pure. And so to be the one who calls out and cancels and, and point the finger at each other. And, and so you get these purity spirals. Whereas if you imagine, if you had like a woke Vatican that could set the doctrine and say, no, this is, this is where we're going and no further. And if you step outside of that, then you're gonna be punished or excommunicated or whatever, then it would be a different story. So we have kind of, um, there's a very good environment for fundamentalism because you have this decentered priesthood in wokeness, as you do in Islam, as you do in Judaism. Uh, and so that's one commonality, I think. And, and, but other than that, I mean, the witch hunting, for example, I mean, the witch hunting happens, um, it happens for a number of reasons, but I think it's easier when you have these competitive uh, preachers that are, you know, trying to get followings and, and working against each other in some way to, to bid up the system. The other thing too, is you get fundamentalism when you have, when everyone is a Muslim 
and someone comes along and say, I'm the really good Muslim, it's pretty hard to argue against them from the point of view of Islam. And similarly, if everyone's on the left, someone comes around and says, I'm the holiest of the leftists, it's, it's, much, it's hard to sort of argue against the anti-racists from the left. It's not easy. I mean, some do, but it's, uh, it means, therefore, the more homogenous an environment, the, the more you're going to get these fundamentalist upsurges. And that's why the university, as it gets more homogenous, it be, provides more and more fertile soil for um, the, these upsurge of, of what Matthew Iglesias calls the great awakening. But you get these, uh, this upsurge of craziness post-2015. It's actually the third major great awakening, which is similar to the Protestant great awakenings, by the way, of which there have been three or four in American history uh, of these revivalist movements. And right, so in, with wokeness, we had the first one in the late 60s uh, with the student protests and movements, the second one in the late 80s, early 90s with political correctness, speech codes, Afrocentrism, multicultural, all of that. And then we have had another one since about 2014, 15. Each time, if you look at um, the mention of words like racist and sexist in uh, English language books, you can see an upsurge each time, each one of these uh, awakenings. Uh, but it's not as though they disappear. So you get this upsurge, but then it, it remains at a higher level. So after the sort of political correctness phase, it's not as though everyone went back to not being politically correct. They more or less locked in those gains, locked in that power. And then now that we've had a third upsurge, they're going to try and lock that power in and have, move it up to another level and then another level. So this is why, I mean, I think what's interesting is in this awakening now, because they've gone so far, they've actually spawned a lot more. For the first time, we're getting some proper pushback and some proper counter mobilization. More and more institutions are being formed. It's made it onto the political agenda in a way that wasn't true in the 90s in quite the same way. Um, so critical race theory now is a political issue in America, whereas political correctness was never really, um, it was never really a huge national political issue in the say 1990s and 2000s. I don't, I mean, I'm, you know, yes, you had English only legislation and there was opposition to bilingual education and you had some of these sort of more bread and butter political campaigns going on at the state level, but you never had this, you didn't quite have the national level political conversation around wokeness and critical race theory and all this. So I, I'm kind of optimistic in some ways that at least it's out, it's now gone so far that it's out in the open and, and we're having a debate. About some of the pushback, because um, I know there's a huge debate on some of these things. Now, again, I've only, when the, when like in the States, I think there's eight states now that have legislation against uh, critical race theory, but I mean, I think it was only Florida where the governor said we're going after critical race theory. All the other ones said you cannot scapegoat by race and gender and sex. Now, I read the the first four uh, that had come out, and or first four or five. Two of them kind of worried me about one line, and maybe I'm nitpicking or whatever, but <clears throat> they just said you cannot teach that the United States is a racist place. Now, I preferred the language that the culture minister in the UK used, where it's like you cannot teach this critically which I think that word critically adds a little bit of nuance that just says you can't teach this because I'm worried about something like that, like where you can't teach the United States is a racist place, which I mean, I don't agree with that statement, but you might go back to what was going on in the Southern States up until about two years ago, even where they were downplaying slavery and downplaying Jim Crow and students weren't getting a full view of what was actually going on. Like, I mean, I think that's wrong as much as saying the United States is a wholly unredeemable racist place or that Canada is, or the UK is. Um, are you concerned about <clears throat> some of these legislations? Like I think most of them are good, but you know, there's always the overreach. There's always, you know, creep and I things agree. like that. I, I, I do. I agree with you. I think a lot of it isn't well thought out or coming from a solid bedrock of principle. And so, you know, I'm critical of, for example, there's been, you, you'll have the Trump administration say, well, we're going to have, um, get rid of critical race theory. We're going to, we're going to defend uh, academic freedom. But then on the other hand, they're putting in, they're saying universities all have to abide by the, um, you know, the definition of, the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism, which is actually, which is 
you know, it's not that I have a problem with that definition, but the problem is it, it's it going it's going beyond beyond the law, and therefore it is essentially a speech code, right? So I would want people who who were within the law but can critique that definition to be allowed to do so. Um, that that's a consistent approach where you're saying, well, we'll def- you know, you're allowed speech within the law, we'll, uh, and and if the university tries to sort of come up with a speech code that is more restrictive than the law, we're not going to let, let them do it. That's the, the approach that I would like to see. Um, and, and, and as you say, similarly with critical race theory, I would want to allow, you'd want academics to be able to teach critical race theory um, with a couple of provisos. One is nothing mandatory, so no one should be forced to take it. Um, and so mandatory diversity training that embodies critical race theory, that should be banned. Uh, but if people know, if they're going into this with their eyes open, you know, if there's a market for it and, and someone wants to teach it, I, I think that's fine. I, I understand the criticism that they are teaching hatred of a race, but I think universities should be a place where you can really explore ideas and, and I would, you know, those ideas then can be critiqued um, at the university. So I, I wouldn't want to start specifying banning things uh, necessarily in terms of content, especially where voluntary. Yes, the compulsory stuff should be banned, but not the voluntary. So I think those kind of principles where it's, it stems from a consistent argument and then it's applied. The other thing too, is I don't think they've thought well enough about the mechanisms and the enforcement of, you know, they have to get, like in the UK case, they are, they are, I think pretty strategic. They're going to set up a, a position, an office where this individual called the academic freedom champion can more or less breathe down the necks of universities because you have to put pressure on them and there has to be teeth in the term, in, in the form of fines. And this is not, uh, it's often portrayed as sort of a violation of academic freedom because the government is telling universities what to do. Well, already the government tells universities all they have to abide by academic freedom. And the, the reason you need the government in there is because the oppression is coming out of, the threat to liberty is coming out of the institutional layer, not the government. So there are, there's three layers as the society, government, these middle layer institutions like universities um, or, or, or firms or whatever, and then the individual citizen. It's not the case that all oppression of liberty comes from government against citizen. A lot of times it's from, these intermediate entities oppressing the, the citizenry. And that's when you need the government to actually come in and um, sort of, well, what's the word? I suppose interdict these institutions, prevent them. You have to curb their autonomy in order to, to safeguard the autonomy of individuals. And this is a, a situation like that. It's a bit like there's a, a gang of thugs outside my door. I can't have no freedom to leave my house until the police arrive and take these people away. And this is a similar situation or, or, or to take universities, um, no black students could be admitted to the Southern universities in the early sixties. The federal government had to tell those universities, essentially, you don't have the freedom to determine your own admissions policies. You're gonna admit people uh, regardless of race. And so that actually opened up freedom for the citizens who were being denied their freedom, but it was government guaranteeing the freedom. And this is a similar kind of situation. You need the government to come in to uh, restrain the autonomy of the universities in order to allow individuals to have their freedom. And, but it's not good enough to, to have a situation like in the U S where people have to sue. Um, even though that's important, it's an important safeguard, but if you have to actually fight your university for a year and sue them and maybe lose, possibly lose your job and have to settle out of court or whatever, you're not going to take that risk. Um, and so in order to remove the chill effects, you need a proactive government auditing and enforcement mechanism that is constantly pursuing complaints and constantly auditing universities. That's the way we get rid of at least one part of the equation, which is the hard authoritarianism that comes from threats of discipline. Um, but it has to be, I think, you know, principle, it's got to be uh, coming from a, a logic that makes sense to everyone. And there are some left-wing students who might want to criticize Israel that can benefit from this as well. I, I think that that is the approach I favor, whereas in the U.S. you're getting a mix, some stuff that's really good, but some stuff that I think is misguided, like trying to get rid of tenure, that actually weakens academic freedom, and that's being done in Iowa. The, the, a kind of punitive approach, which is all about cutting. You, know, you can't cut your way out of this problem. 
I, I just think trying to apply that kind of economic dollars and cents approach to this, this is a cultural issue and needs cultural principles behind it. Okay, I mean, like I've been equating a lot of this stuff to, <clears throat> like I was saying, you know, it, it's one overcorrection after another. Like you get an overcorrection from the right, you get an overcorrection mm -hmm. from the left. It's the pendulum's not stopping in the middle anywhere to, to let like a sensible solution come through. But you know, I agree with you. Like if they want to teach critical race theory in universities and someone wants to pay for that course, I, no problem. But it's the application afterwards. Like I don't think in the same way, I wouldn't want curriculums for K through 12 formed by Islam or Christianity or Judaism or Scientology or any of that other stuff. I wouldn't want curriculums formed by, you know, critical race theory or the anti-racism that's an offshoot of it, or even gender studies and things like that. Like these, they're not proven. There's they're, they're unfalsifiable. I mean, you know, right. the anti-racism that comes from critical race theory is un completely unfalsifiable, you know, <laughs> denying right. racism is, you know, like it's <laughs> right. so, and I don't think you should teach kids to look at race. I mean, there was a, a video that came out yet or yeah, it was an audio basically, but it came out yesterday and it was a, a kid in the high school. And a teacher says, when you look at this picture, what do you see? And this kid raises up his hand just says, or you know, I'm assuming he raises up his hand because you just hear it. He says, I just see two people chilling. And the teacher's forcing the kid to focus on the race of the two people in that picture. And the kid's like, yeah. why do you want me to do that? Like, why yeah. do you want me to look at the race of these two people? And it's, that's where I have a problem. Like, I, I think that should be banned. Like, you, I mean, not that that teacher should be fired or maybe you should, but that you get, you know, like, I wouldn't want a curriculum based on Islam. I wouldn't want a oh. curriculum, you know, based on Christianity. And it's the same thing here. But universities should have that freedom. Like, I, I disagree with some of the hardcore, you know, like, I like James Lindsay, but I disagree with his stance that it get rid of everything. It's the same yeah. reason I, I, I wouldn't agree with fire a biology teacher who's a young earth creationist. If that biology teacher can teach can teach a course material and the kids are doing a good job, you know, they're getting good grades, they're meeting their rec. Let the guy believe in his nonsense as long as he can teach it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. And I also think that, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I understand the point that obviously you don't necessarily want somebody in there teaching you know, protocols of the elders design or whatever. Um, but, but there's a couple of, there are some checks on this. I mean, one is such a person would have to get hired in the first place, which would presume they have to have a publication record and something not completely insane. Also their student ratings, if the person's ratings are terrible and no one's taking his course, that would lead to questions being asked that could effectively lead to the same thing without ha having to actually police content with you know content that is within the law i mean i think the problem is we need to have total academic freedom within the law that's the only secure principle i think for universities now what i think you can do is to say well if you have a course in the english department and it's got critical race theory and it's mandatory to getting an english degree i mean i think you can require universities to put up like cigarette warning labels just saying you know this 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 course contains critical race theory this is necessary to get the degree so as long as people are properly informed and they know yes i'm taking english and to, to an english degree it requires critical race theory to get the degree i'm informed about that then okay i think you know i think that so i think you can actually ask them to do that i think that's not a violation of academic freedom but i think banning it is so that's sort of the distinction I would make. So I, you know, I understand the concern that this is kind of hatred against a group, which I think I would agree with. But at the same time, I think these are tricky questions because they'll always say, no, we're just criticizing this system, not white people. Of course, then they toggle back very quickly to white people. But, but leaving that aside, I, I think there is obviously a gray zone. There are a lot of, you know, you could say Marxism is very much anti the middle class or anti-capitalist or whatever, and that that creates a certain kind of hatred. So it's a very sort of difficult game to police all of these theories. I think it's better to, to allow these theories to battle it out. But at the same time, I think it's reasonable for societies to, to say, well, put a health warning if you're going to, uh, just so people know what they're getting into. And, and they can choose it. If they really want to do it, they can do it. That's fine. Yeah, I mean, like, again, same thing. I mean, and as far as, like, the protocols of the elders of Zion and stuff like that, again, you know, you could teach a course on conspiracy theories and include that in it, you know, like, yeah. because you're teaching conspiracy theories. I mean, I, I took a couple of courses at university on terrorism and, you know, 
you know, we were learning about terrorist organizations <coughs> and how they worked and how, you know, some person says, well, you're, you're creating terrorists. I'm like, well, no, the guy was, you know, so, I mean, I understand that. Like, there's a way to teach the protocols of El elders of Zion. Like, it's, right. it shouldn't be taught as fact. It should just be taught as this is what happened. It, well, I, yeah. But I suppose the issue is if someone's teaching critical race theory as a kind of, like, fact, which is kind of what occurs, yeah. that's that's really the question, right, is, is whether you'd allow that. And I guess my view is, well, there's going to be radicalism that is going to be taught. Now, you're right, though. There's a very clear double standard that, in theory – if someone's allowed to teach critical race theory, they should be allowed to teach, you know, some kind of Jewish conspiracy or whatever. I think that's, that there is a clear double standard that progressive conspiracy theories are okay because they seem to be quote unquote radical, which isn't the same as a conspiracy. One well, fact that it is the same, but it's a different label. Um, and there's a toleration for that kind of radicalism in a way there wouldn't be for uh, right-wing radicalism. Um, and so that is a, that is not, in my view, justifiable. I mean, they, they would say, well, one's harmful and the other isn't. Well, actually, I think if you were to look at the downstream effects of you know, Marxism, for example, and, and, and then if you were to look at the downstream effects of, of left modernism as identity-based leftism, I think you would also find a lot of negativity there. <laughs> so um, I'm not sure that's the right justification. I think probably, ideally, you wouldn't have any of this stuff or you'd only have a fringe of this stuff being taught, but I'm just, I just think it's, it's the wrong approach to go in and start uh, policing content in, in a very intrusive way. I think you can, you can police it if it's mandatory, but not if it's voluntary, I think. Uh, so that's where I part company a, a bit with James. Yeah. I mean, like I said, I, I like James a lot. I get along with him, but yeah, I, I disagree with him on that. It was the same, but it's, like you mentioned the lawsuits, because I know there's a, a woman in Nevada who's, I mean, the court approved it. I think she said she's going in for a deposition today. I think she tweeted that out last night. Um, now, you know, I hope she wins. <clears throat> but at the same time, I don't want to see lawsuit after lawsuit taking down school districts, taking down schools. I mean, you know, you don't want to bankrupt the school system. <laughs> you You really don't. Yeah, and, but but I agree with you. But it's the same. Yeah, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was, yeah. just, I was it was just that. Like I, I'm hoping like this one case in Nevada goes far enough that it big. No, I was just saying I hope it goes far enough that it goes to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court rules. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I mean, I don't think I, I think the these schools, if they care about their funding, um, they should stop teaching us stuff. Uh, I think that there's also an important difference between universities and schools. Universities, it's adults who are voluntarily selecting in, have a lot of choice. Schools are, it's a state interest. You have to go. It's very different. And I think that it's reasonable, for example, it's reasonable to say, as we have in Britain, that um, schools must not indoctrinate. They must be politically neutral. They cannot sort of present something as truth that is nakedly political. I think that's very reasonable in the in the school context. And that implies a certain restriction on the individual teacher's freedom to espouse political positions. Whereas I think in the university case where people are adults, they can choose what they want to study. If somebody, if some lecturer or professor wants to be political, they can be political in a way I don't think should be allowed in the, in the school. So I don't think it's the same exact situation. Yes, we want to allow as much freedom for the teachers as we can. Um, but equally, I think the political neutrality uh, consideration looms larger in the school setting. Um, and equally, something like the teaching of history, the, the state has an interest in producing citizens that are going to be taxpayers that are, you know, they have an interest in a kind of history that is going to be, while not concealing the warts of the past that is still going to foreground the good stuff more than the bad stuff, let's say. And, and I think that's reasonable in a, in a school, whereas in a university, perhaps in a university, there's more room for, you know, critical perspectives or perspectives that are not about building that national loyalty as much. So I think that there's slightly different rules that obtain in, in a university where academic freedom has to be paramount, whereas in some of the other public institutions, it is, it is one value amongst others, and, and it can 
take a back seat in some cases um, to other state, uh, you know, state imperatives, let's say. Uh, so in, in a case of the heritage in, in museum industry in Britain, for example, you know, yes, you can talk about colonialism, but that sh again, it's reasonable to say that shouldn't be the dominant, uh, the, do the criticism is shouldn't be the dominant strand of what now, you know, the National Trust or various museums are, are doing, if they're funded by the government. Um, I think that's reasonable. Government has an interest. Whereas in universities, I think that it, it, criticism and uh, critis critiquing received wisdom has to be the sort of highest principle. And so you can't, you know, whenever there's a clash between academic freedom and other values, the, those other values should be secondary. I was looking at some of the stuff in the United States and there's only two states that have mandatory civics lessons that you need to graduate with. Now, when I went to high school, we, we learned about civics and we learned about our rights and our responsibilities. All I hear people talking about is rights, rights, rights. I don't hear people talking about their responsibilities as a citizen. I, again, that comes down to, you know, K through 12 education. I, the, the, you know, the, the, teaching kids rights and responsibilities of the citizens. Like every citizen has rights, but they also have responsibilities, you know, you know, the social contract type of thing, right? Like you have a responsibility not to kill someone. You have a responsibility not to steal. You have a, you know, like, I don't think that's being emphasized enough. No, 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 I agree. I agree. I mean, there's so many things that aren't being taught, including respect for, um, free speech, for example. Um, and so, yeah, a lot of students are just coming out with this view that emotional safety is the highest good. And uh, they are simply being socialized by the media, by, particularly by celebrity culture and pop culture into this left modernist um, identity centered belief system um, and this sort of religion. So, yeah, I think you're right. I think there isn't that. And it, it, it ideally would be there. <laughs> um, look, I know you got to get going a little bit, and I don't want to keep you too long. Um, I've got to get a couple of things done yeah. myself. So if you got any last words about some of the stuff that's going on or maybe some, you know, some words of hope, please go ahead and let people know where they can get a hold of you. Well, yeah, you can find my, my website is, is, is www.snepssnepss.net. Um, and then I'm at on Twitter at uh, EPKAUFM, EPKAUFM. Um, so that's probably the easiest way to find, find me. I mean, you know, just looking ahead, I think, you know, it's interesting. I, I, to some degree, I mean, this is a strange way of looking at it, but to some degree, the excesses of wokeness have pushed into view for a larger number of people. So the underlying problems with the worldview that came of age in the late 1960s, which is more or less the anti-majority, anti pro-minority worldview. Uh, it, it's a very kind of emotional, sub, it's an emotional substructure that, that drives a whole set of ideas. And I think we need to, ultimately as a society, we need to sort of come to a realization that everybody is the same rather than that there are some groups of people that are special and holy and others that are, are fallen and damned. Um, and, you know, I think it's happening. I mean, I think there is more pushback now than there was during the political, uh, the year of political correctness in the sort of early nineties. And that gives me some hope that, that there is a mobilization, but I also think we can't just sacrifice uh, an entire generation. I mean, we're the problem is going to get worse before it gets better because the younger generation is more saturated in this uh, religion. They don't really, they th for them, free speech is not an automatic thing the way it was for, say, our generation. And so we're going to need more government. Um, we, we're going to need democratically elected governments and the courts to step in more intrusively into uh, institutions to be sure that they are upholding uh, freedom of speech, academic freedom, and so on. And that's, I think, going to kind of define some of the politics of this going forward, is that the conservative and or uh, centrist uh, forces are going to need to embrace 
even though it goes against some of their core beliefs, they think they're going to really need to embrace government intervention into these institutions in a, in a quite intrusive way, um, in a way that is really all about upholding the law and is, is all about protecting liberty of individuals from predatory institutions. The reason those institutions are predatory is because activists are able to infiltrate and put pressure on those institutions. And really the only way to shut down the power of those activists is to use um, government sanctions, carrots and sticks, uh, which are so obvious and so clear that universities and other institutions can say to the activists, look, you know, even if we sympathize with you, we, our hands are completely tied. We can't do anything. Um, and only at that point is liberty going to be safe and can we move on? So I, I guess it's a plea with, for, for people to sort of stop thinking that you can cut your way out of this problem or that somehow libertarianism and the market is going to save us. It won't. Uh, it's going to take patient uh, government intervention, really, in order to actually neutralize um, the problem within the institutions. And then it's also, of course, going to take the wider cultural battle to stick up for values of, of liberty as against uh, emotional safety. That's, that's, a good, that's a good way to end on. Well, Eric, thank you very much for coming on. Great. Thanks, Obey. It was great. And um, good luck. Good luck. And keep doing what you're doing. You're doing a great uh, job. I'll keep plugging along. And thanks, everyone, for listening.